0: Good afternoon and happy Sabbath, everyone. It's good to see you all. A few weeks ago, Jinha turned to me and she asked me, do you have any New Year's resolutions? And the question kind of I didn't have a strong response to it, but I just kind of felt a bit ambivalent to responding to her because the moment I respond and say, yes, I have a new year's resolution means that there's accountability and I don't want accountability. I just want, I just want to be me. And as she was like, as we were, as we were discussing around the validity behind the value of new year's resolutions, I kind of thought about it for a few more weeks. And as I was preparing the sermon, I kind of thought, you know what? it is good to have New Year's resolutions. Like, it's good to set goals. It's good to think about um, what what should I look forward to and what should I work towards and pray towards in 2024. And so, anyway, we're continuing on in our series over the book of Leviticus. And today's um, sermon is entitled Atonement, a Meaningful Reset for New Year's. Now, um, earlier this week, my, my phone was just really slow. I was trying to load different pages, and I was trying to um, load a a YouTube video, and I don't know if you guys have seen that wheel that kind of spins when your phone is thinking, and I just kind of thought, why is my phone so slow? And uh, I was sitting next to Jin Ha, and she turned to me, and she asked, when's the last time you turned your phone off? And I paused and looked at her, and I thought, never? (laughs) Like, I just, I don't turn my phone off. And she was like, you should try and turn your phone off. And so I kind of look at what apps I have open, and I had over 15 apps open on my phone. And so I closed each of the apps, and then I turned my phone off, waited for a few moments, and flicked it back on, And my phone was like lightning. It hasn't worked that good in such a long time. It was so fast. And I thought, huh, like that's interesting. And I realized I don't actually know how my phone works. And so I kind of did a quick search. Why does turning your phone on and off make it faster. And uh, apparently, um, when, when you leave your phone on for long periods of time, your apps require RAM. It, it, it's memory used to run your apps. And as your phone stays on longer and longer and longer, those apps, even if you're not using it, takes up memory. And so then, When you turn your phone off and when you close your apps and turn your phone off and on, it allows the memory to be reallocated to apps that you're actually using, and your phone resets, and then it works properly. Well, today we're going to talk about the value of resetting, and the Day of Atonement teaches us uh, teaches us how to reset. Now, the Hebrews of old used to call the Day of Atonement Yom HaKippurim. And today, our Jewish friends, they, they call the special day Yom Kippur. And a Yom Kippur is basically a day of purgation, a day of cleansing. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he refers to Yom Kippur as the Great Reset, a holy day that happened once a year when the Israelites would be reminded of the fresh start that is promised in God. So this New Year's, as you consider your resolutions, your goals, I want to encourage you to take time to spiritually reset and let God speak into your heart and let God speak into your goals. So let's look at the Day of Atonement together. Now, when you look at the structure of the book of Leviticus, we find this mirroring mirroring of themes that takes place throughout the book, and as you can tell, uh, the ritual sacrifices are on the outside, then the ordination of priests, then the laws about ritual purity, and then in the dead center we find the Day of Atonement. And in, 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 um, in Hebrew literature, this structure is used, and for those of you who want to get fancy, it's called a chiastic structure, and basically the structure communicates the most important or climactic part of the book, and for The book of Leviticus, the most important part of the book is the Day of Atonement. So here we go looking at Leviticus chapter 16. For those of you who want to follow in your own scripture, you can go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to have most of the passages here on the screen for you. So in the introduction of chapter 16 this chapter acts as a continuation or even a juxtaposition of Leviticus chapter 10. And just as a, I guess, as a review or a reminder for those of you um, who are familiar, and also for those of you who are not familiar, in Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron, the high priest, has two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And They are elected as priests and they're supposed to go and minister in the sanctuary or the temple of God. And the Bible says that they take this strange fire and they load it into these censers and they kind of worship God in a way that they want to worship him. And um, what happens is God kind of doesn't like this and the two of them lose their lives. And this is a very confronting story. It's like it's the opening era of the sanctuary, and two of the people that are elected to work in there die from the ministry. Um, If I were someone in Israel, that would terrify me. Or if I was someone who was reading scripture for the first time and I read this, I would think to myself, what is the big deal here? Why would I want to worship God after I read this story? Now, uh, Tim Mackey, he describes God's presence as both life-giving and dangerous. There's this interesting contrast that's embedded in the very life and nature of God. And that might seem quite troubling, but if you look at anything that is important in life, anything that we have that's dedicated to preserving our life, it is both life-giving and dangerous. So for example, water. We are 100% dependent on water for our survival, but water can also drown you. Or if you think about the sun, Our planet is dependent on the sun for life, but if you get too close to it, it'll destroy you. And so, in everything in life that produces life or is life-promoting, there are rules around that thing that are both life-preserving but also dangerous. When I read through scriptures, sometimes as a pastor, I feel unsettled about this. But the point is, everything in life requires rules and regulations. And by adopting these principles, we can experience life. So Aaron's two sons, they're flippant in the way that they worship God and they die. So in chapter 16, God instructs his people, this is the way that I want you to worship me. This is the way that not only keeps you alive, but it makes you thrive in my presence. So just as a side note... Um, the vast majority of Christianity, I think, kind of worships God the way that it wants to. And I know this is a critique on my own faith, but you know, a lot of people ask the question, why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many different kinds of Christians? And when you look at the world, the majority of the world believes in some kind of God. And uh, the biggest worldview is Christianity in the world today. And the point is that we as humans naturally kind of live for ourselves and so then the 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 progression is to then worship god the way that we want to and what we're seeing is that in the developed world christianity is slowly dying and i think it's for this very reason and leviticus kind of calls us to then refocus and to ask ourselves the question god how do you want to be worshiped so we continue on to god's instructions Now, I'm just going to give, like, a disclaimer. As we read through the instructions, you're going to find that Moses touches on a topic, and then he jumps to another idea, and then he comes back to the original idea, and he kind of jumps and skips all over the place. And my personal theory is that Moses may have had ADHD because he writes like I do. (laughs) I read this, and I'm like, I I recognize this pattern. (laughs) So I'm I'm going to go in a linear fashion. We're going to go from verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter, but it skips around, so I'm just letting you know to bear with me. So we pick up somewhere. Oh, right. Thanks, James. I forgot. I forgot. Okay. All right. So we pick up in verse three. Now, before Aaron enters into God's presence, he has to offer a sin or purification offering for himself and his family. And next, as he offers this purification offering, he then bathes himself and he puts on um, this special linen garment to go minister into the most holy place in the sanctuary now what 's interesting to me is that when you look at the um, attire of the priests, um, the regular ministry required the priest to wear this these ornate um, this ornate uniform. There are precious gemstones in front of the priest there 's like a golden crown on top of the priest. But in contrast to the regular ministry of the, of the high priest, when it comes to the Day of Atonement, the priest takes off all of this ornate um, clothing and just puts on simple linen clothing. It's interesting that God required simplicity on this special day. So we continue on. Next, the priest, uh, or Aaron, was to take two goats and cast lots over them. Now, basically these are like ancient dice i don't know what what these tools look like maybe they were sticks maybe they were similar to the dice that we use but there was this randomizing tool that was used to to kind of select or to allocate these two goats now what's interesting is that when you look at the niv um, it says one lot one of the goats was to go for the lord and the other for the scapegoat And that word scapegoat is actually a mistranslation. The word is azazel. And when the scholars read this word azazel, they asked themselves the question, what is this? And nobody knew, and so some of the modern translations call it scapegoat. But how can the scapegoat be allocated for the scapegoat? And so you can understand the the theological conundrum here. And and, and we're going to talk about this later on, because Moses skips a bunch and then comes back to it. So we're going to do the same, just bear with me. So Moses selects two goats, he designates them for their purpose, and next, I said Moses, Aaron does that. And next, um, Aaron offers a sacrifice for himself and his family. As you read through the passage, you'll find that Aaron then takes two handfuls of incense and he puts them in these sensors or these containers and he lights them on fire And next, Aaron walks into the most holy place. There's this veil that he walks through. And and the Bible says that God's very presence was supposed to reside uh, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so here, Aaron is supposed to step into the very presence of God. But what's interesting is that this incense that Aaron was supposed to burn would create this smoky barrier that was supposed to come between himself and God. And so you picture this dark room and there's this bright light that represents the well it's not it doesn't represent the presence of God it is the presence of God there's this bright light and as Aaron walks in he's got to light this incense so this smoke creates this shield and I kind of wonder what was going through Aaron's mind if he ever tried to peek through the smoke to see if he can get a glimpse of the like what's it like to look at God and, and I just kind of wonder if Aaron was curious Or if he kind of was afraid for his life and decided, I'm just going to cover my eyes and hope that there's enough smoke so that when I do the ritual, I can stay alive. Next, Aaron was to take blood from this purification offering from the bull. And he would sprinkle it once on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would sprinkle it seven times in front of the Ark. And it's, it's interesting, the holiness that God requires here, because God doesn't want Aaron to touch anything, and so he's instructed simply to sprinkle. When we continue on in verse 15, after the first round of blood sprinkling, Aaron was to take the goat selected for the Lord, and he would then slaughter the goat, take its blood, and repeat the steps from the previous sacrifice. Now the first sacrifice it was meant for Aaron and his household but the second sacrifice it was meant for all of Israel it wasn't personal sin that was to be cleansed it was corporate sin and there's a distinction here on any other day the Hebrews were instructed to bring in personal sacrifices for their sins and in the in part 1 of our series we looked at one of those Personal sacrifices, and I think we looked at the burnt offerings. And basically, when you look at the whole section of Amsari offerings that were uh, dedicated for personal forgiveness, um, what we see here is that there's there's a personal element uh, dedicated to to this this aspect of forgiveness, but. Uh, when you look at the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice is made on behalf of all the people as a whole, and it's as if God wanted to communicate to everyone, you're my people, and there is need to take into consideration the spirituality of corporate Israel, not just personal Israel. And it kind of makes me wonder um, what impact Christianity would have on the world if, as a worldview, we took responsibility for our actions. Like, we actually address our policies and our institutions and how they impact the rest of the world. See, Yom Kippur tells us that God cares about these things. When you look at verse 17 in this passage, Moses throws in this side note. Nobody is supposed to enter into the sanctuary during the atonement process. It's like God wants personal time with Aaron. No distractions, no people, just him and Aaron there's some important lessons on forgiveness that Yom Kippur teaches us, and I kind of want to explore them with you um, just now. When you look at verse 18 and 19, after the goat sacrifice, Aaron mixes the blood from the bull and the goat, and he wipes the blood around the horns of the altar outside of the sanctuary. And and this progression, it's really important in contrast to the other sacrifices. When you look at Leviticus chapter 4, verses 3 to 7, um, we're given another example of, of um, a guilt offering. And in this offering, the priest confesses the sins of the individual on the animal. Then after slaughter, he takes the blood into the sanctuary and he sprinkles the blood on the veil, separating the most holy place from the sanctuary seven times. Then he takes the blood and he wipes it on the horns of the altar of incense. And I think I've got a picture of... The sanctuary. This is the sanctuary from a bird's eye view. So here in the outer court, you have the bronze altar, then the bronze laver, and as you move towards the most holy place, you then have three items of furniture. Then you've got a veil separating the most holy place from the holy place. And so in, in the guilt offering, Aaron goes in and he sprinkles blood on the veil, and then he wipes blood on the altar of incense, and the blood stays inside of the building. Now, in contrast to this, when you look at the Day of Atonement, what we just read is that Aaron takes blood, he sprinkles it inside of the most holy place, and then he walks outside of the building completely to the bronze altar, and he wipes the blood on the horns of the altar. And what's being communicated here is that on a daily basis, when there was um, guilt offerings given, blood moved into the sanctuary. But on the Day of Atonement, blood moved out of the sanctuary. Does that make sense? Okay, that probably wasn't a good question. But anyway, you guys are clever people, so um, there, there's that point in writing. So um, when you look at the when you look at the passage from uh, the Day of Atonement, God tells Moses. Hey, the reason why blood is being spilled and blood is being wiped on these different pieces of furniture is because this act of wiping, it cleanses Israel from sin. Now, why does blood clean sin? Like, I, I just, I, I struggle with that because I just kind of think it's such a messy practice. Like, normally I would think that um, you would kind of clean the blood away in order to make something clean. But instead, making more of a mess is what makes uh, the sanctuary clean. Now, I think God designs it this way because forgiveness works like this. Um, Forgiveness is messy. It requires the sacrifice of Jesus. And the reality is that um, while it's nice to think about forgiveness as this comforting, relaxing, peaceful experience... God wanted to teach his people there's a messiness that's associated with the act of forgiveness. See, our forgiveness was brought about because Jesus had to die a violent death, and it's uncomfortable. And I kind of picture um, animal activists if they were alive in the time of the Old Testament. It's like, why does this whole nation do this? This is terrible. And and the point is, it is terrible, but that's what forgiveness cost uh, that, that's the cost of forgiveness. I also think it's interesting that when you look at the sanctuary layout and how the regular ministry of the priest would bring blood in and the day of atonement the uh, the blood would be brought out, there are stages of forgiveness in other words, um, forgiveness wasn't a one and done type of an experience, and I think sometimes um, it's easy to feel like. Once you accept Jesus, you're just supposed to get it right the first time. And, and especially as mature Christians, if, if you've been in the church for a long time, and you feel like, God, why do I still feel like such a sinner? And why do I still feel such tremendous guilt? Um, I, I love this picture that the Day of Atonement presents, because these practices, some of them were done every single day. Some of the practices were done every single year. And the reality is that forgiveness happens in stages. It's a process. It doesn't happen in a moment. And that's why God doesn't say, hey, after one year and one time you do the Day of Atonement, it's done. And then there's no more forgiveness for you. I love the fact that God gets it. And so he's like, I need to remind the people every single day and then every single year, there is forgiveness for you. Because that's how spirituality works. That's how we grow You know, I think about spiritual growth quite often. Well, I was going to say maybe it's because I'm a pastor. I, I, I don't think that's true. But I think about spiritual growth a lot. And, and when I think about the Day of Atonement, it makes me kind of ask that question, God, if, if there is sacrifice that happens so often, when, when does the change happen? if people keep sinning and they keep bringing in animals and animals keep dying and then, like, when does that stop? Like, Because that's the point of Christianity, right? It's, it's to actually experience transformation and change. And what, what I find interesting about how this works is that, you know, yes, we talked about the process. Yes, we talked about how it's violent. But there's also a relational aspect that's injected into this practice. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, in, in every other um, religion surrounding Israel, people would bring sacrifices to their gods. But in the Day of Atonement, God is the sacrifice. And, and the point here is that oftentimes when we think about spiritual growth and righteousness, it's a personal thing. But because God is the sacrifice, God is communicating, see, righteousness is a relational thing. And here's the difference between the two things. You know, if I'm being honest, I have so many extrinsic motivators for developing righteousness in my own life. Um, You know, if I develop righteousness, um, I might gain respect. In my line of work, I might get a promotion, right? I, I might get an upgrade. How great would that be? I might gain the blessings of God, and people might think I'm holy. There are extrinsic motivators for for cultivating righteousness. But what God wanted to teach Israel is to make righteousness relational. And the whole point is God is communicating sin is what killed God. Sin is what killed God. And, And the more you think about that, the more questions you start asking, like, what is sin that it can kill a divine being? Like, you think about what it was like to be Jesus, right? Yes, he was born of Mary, and he was born a human, he was born of man, but he was also divine. Like, he could heal people. He could raise them from the dead. He knew who people, He knew people's stories before he even met them. Like, Jesus is God. He is light, and he is life. And when he's on the cross... Sin kills him. So then what is sin that it could extinguish life personified? So then as we look at as the Israelites were to look at the sacrifice of this animal and and, and the result of sin, they would then ask themselves that question: hey, it is our acts that bring about this death. And and the point is, as our righteousness becomes relational. That extrinsic motivation becomes intrinsic. I want to do good because it is good to God, and it is good for God, and it is good for the community. So in Psalm 23, David writes, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And, and I, love, I love that one line. Because I think, ultimately, that's the only motivation that will develop genuine faith and genuine righteousness and genuine growth. So we continue on. Verse 20. Aaron finishes making atonement for the most holy place. And uh, earlier we talked about the two goats, and Moses kind of brings this back up. So we talked about the goat that's dedicated to the Lord and the goat that dies. Now we have one goat that's alive. And Aaron is instructed to take both of his hands, lay them on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Now, What's interesting is that this goat is dedicated to Azazel and so scholars scholars have been asking the question who's Azazel who is this character and and clearly this character is in contrast to the Lord and nobody is able to give the answer but it's really interesting that um so Roy Gain is an Adventist scholar and um Basically, he's given significant contributions to this one idea, and actually many ideas through the Book of Leviticus. Um, there's a really famous commentary set called the a New International Version um, Life Application Bible Commentary Set. And this one set is probably used by the majority of Christianity. And when you look at who the contributor is for the Book of Leviticus, it's Roy Gain, a Seventh-day Adventist. And so, basically, everybody asks the question, who is this Azazel? And his response is, it's the enemy. It's the enemy. And it's so interesting because when you look at Adventist scholarship and you look at um, our understanding of um, events at the second coming of Christ and beyond the second coming of Christ, there's this period of, of, I guess there's this wilderness experience that um, Lucifer experiences himself for a period of a thousand years. And so, here, in this goat that's dedicated to Azazel, there's this wilderness wandering that takes place before the goat then perishes. And once again, it's, it's, it's a very, kind of like a not nice thing to read through. Like, when you read through this, you're not thinking, wow, God is so loving. You read through this, and you're like, wow, this is really uncomfortable. <laughs> but this is really important. So, there are two goats one goat is dedicated to the lord and the other is dedicated to azazel and so the point or the idea that god is trying to communicate to israel is that the priest or sorry let me i'm just going to read through roy gaines um commentary on the azazel he says this goat belongs to azazel the priest does not offer the live goat to the lord for his utilization this is not a sacrifice It is not conceived then as an offering, but as a vehicle for carrying off sin. And what the community sends to Azazel is not so much the goat as the sin it bears. It's, uh, excuse me, yeah, it's not so much about um, the sin that it bears. It is just the punishment for sin. So when you look at these two goats, on one hand, you've got the goat dedicated to the Lord, that serves as a sacrifice, and it provides forgiveness for Israel. Then on the other hand, you have this second goat dedicated to Azazel, and it's, it's designed for accountability. It's saying, these are the consequences of sin, which is this goat going off into the wilderness and dying. And when I think about this, forgiveness, it's not just about personal peace. It's about understanding the consequence of sin. See, after the first goat, the Israelites would experience a sense of forgiveness. But as they observed the second goat, they would see sin has consequences. Finally, and I'm going to, there's a portion of text that I'm just going to skip, but in verse 29, in closing, God communicates to Israel, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the 7th month, You must deny yourselves. And do not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. See, in closing, God instructs Aaron what to do for the Day of Atonement, but then God wants his people to respond in a certain way, and he tells them, I want you to cease, I want you to rest, and I want you to deny yourselves. And the practice of the Israelites is that they would fast during the Day of Atonement. I want to focus on this last little bit. The act of resting and ceasing is what prepared the people for spiritual rest and spiritual renewal. There's this interesting uh, article from the Harvard Business Review. And um, it argues that humans are designed for periods of rest, silence, and deep thought. And in the article, it it refers to this um, research that was done from Duke Medical, uh, from the the, the medical school in Duke. And uh, there's a researcher by the name of uh, M.K. Kirst. And he found that silence is associated with the development of new cells in the hippocampus the key brain region associated with learning and memory. So Kirsten and his team, they've been researching brain development, and what they found is that as people um, have movement in their lives, as they exercise, it it leads to brain development. And what his team decided to ask was, um, what, if, what if we don't just focus on physical stimulation, but auditory stimulation? So what if we just pump sounds into the brain, would there be would there be development uh, the same as movement? And so in their double-blind test, they took mice and they put them in this confined area, and there were, uh, there were four um, stimulations that they gave to the mice. One was just background white noise. Uh, the second was pup calls from mice. Uh, the third was Mozart, and the fourth was silence. So it's just nothing. And so, after a 24-hour period, what they found is that um, every single stimulation responded in brain development, and, and they were looking, they were specifically measuring the development of Sox2, the Sox2 cell, and apparently this is really important in developing memory and uh, memory and learning in the hippocampus. And so, um, yeah, after a 24-hour period, um, there was there was stimulation and and cell development. Um, In all of them, except for background noise. So background noise did nothing. Mozart, pup calls, and silence all led to uh, brain cell development. So they said, okay, well, let's just keep measuring this as the days roll by. So one, two, three, four, five days passed by, cell development in each of those three uh, stimuli. The seventh day rolled by, and only one of the stimulation continued to lead to brain development. And that was silence. And it's so interesting that in a seven-day cycle, only one of the four stimulation led to actual long-term brain development. Um, I didn't word that correctly. In a seven-day cycle, only one of the stimulation continued to have lasting effects. And, you know, it's so interesting that there's that seven-day cycle because in the Day of Atonement, God says, hey, rest, this is a Sabbath for you. And for us as Seventh-day Adventists, that seven-day cycle is actually really important to have one day where we cease, where we practice time away from all the distractions that we normally face and connect with each other and connect with God. I, I find it so interesting that there's this connection between the development of intelligence and the act of rest and silence. Um, you know, the, when God created man and woman, the very first thing he tells them to do is rest. It's like, hey, I made you good. I made you intelligent. And the very thing that I want you to do now is to practice separation, silence, and rest. It's as if God is communicating, and and the research definitely backs it up, that it is the act of rest that makes us intelligent beings you know, it is only, I would also add that it is only intelligent beings that can actually cease and rest. If you look at any other animal on the planet, animals don't observe Sabbath rests. There is no ability to do so. When you look at inanimate objects or flora or organic material, it does not rest, but God's pinnacle of creation has the ability to rest. I just want to end by sharing one little um, illustration if I can find it. Patience, did I leave a little glass jar next to you? Great. I'm going to grab that for me. After all this, it's not going to work. <laughs> all right. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to chuck, chuck the string outside of the jar and, and the point is, if that was an infinitely long piece of chain, it would have never stopped because it cannot stop because it doesn't have a brain. And you know, you look at COVID nineteen. How great would it have been if COVID was a person, a being? Excuse me, COVID, could you please stop because you're ruining our lives? How great would that have been? And the point is, God created you and I differently he created us with the ability to stop and to cease. And the point is that it actually creates more intelligence when we, do, when we do that. And so it's my prayer and encouragement to you that as you start 2024, to take time to pause, to cease, to practice self-denial in some way. Maybe Maybe it is physical fasting. Maybe it is from your phone or from whatever it may be. And to ask God, God, let me step into your presence, experience forgiveness, and let that guide and direct your goals for 2024. May God bless you as you consider his word. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you today and... Father, sometimes when we look at forgiveness as an idea, it can be overstated. But, Father, the the experience of forgiveness never gets old. And so I pray that as we are on the cusp of entering into 2024, that you would draw us into a place of rest and reset, a place where we give you space, where we think about what forgiveness actually means. And Father, as we um, commit to you and to your mission, I pray that you would guide and direct us for 2024. Set our agendas, set our goals, and may we build your kingdom. May we draw closer to you. May we lead other people to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.